With me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a show that is going to fire you up, make you laugh, and make you sit up and pay attention today. It's a really great show. We start off with the co-host of Feminist Buzzkills podcast. It is a terrific segment. Then we dive into talking with U.S. Representative Jimmy Gomez, who is head of the Dads Caucus in Congress. After that, we hear directly what's happening with the writer's strike right now in Hollywood. And then after that, we close the show hearing how the elections are going, the big races in Virginia. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We have the most spectacular experience for you right now with the Feminist Buzzkill podcast hosts, Moji Alawede-L. Welcome, 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 Moji. Hi, Kristen. I'm so excited to be here with you. Okay, I'm so excited. And before we get going, how can everybody listen to the Feminist Buzzkill podcast? Because you know everybody's going to want to listen. We are on all the podcast streaming services. So you can go to Apple Podcast app. You can go to Spotify. You can go to, wait, what are the other ones? You can go to wherever you listen to your podcast. We are there streaming. We launch every Friday on um, at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And you can hear Liz and I yammer all about the abortion mania and uh, all the things you need to know and all the things you want to know. And we're funny. We usually have some incredible guests. You are super funny. And that's what I love. And, and you said yammer on about abortion. And honestly, that's often not a humorous topic. But somehow you all make it humorous. And, you know, you can either laugh or cry about the situation, sometimes both at the same time. So, you know, what is going on with the abortion situation right now? The abortion situation in this country is terrible. I feel like we are so fractured and it seems like place to place, minute to minute, hour to hour sometimes, the level of access that it, that people have changes and it depends entirely on their area code and not on like necessarily who they would have voted for or necessarily what they expected when they voted or what they expected when they didn't vote. I feel like a lot of times we don't pay attention to local politics. And at this point, because of the Dobbs decision of last year, basically this has all been handed back to local politicians. So if you're somewhere that believes that people with uteruses should have bodily autonomy, then you probably have the right to abortion on some manageable level. And if you're somewhere that believes uh, that fetuses are better than people, then, you know, minute to minute, hour to hour, second to second, your your access can change. And that's what we talk about. That's what we remind people, because it seems like after the Dobbs decision, media got really excited to talk about abortion, but it still seems to be fading and terrible things are still happening all the time. So we like to have a little drum beat and say like, guys, things are still happening and they're bad and we can try to do something now. And it's like a drum beat. Like, listen, I can't even make a drum beat. I'm like trying to make a drum beat. <laughs> There's a real drum beat. And yeah. one of the things you said that I think is so important is that in some places, Politicians think fetuses are more important than actual people, but it's not just fetuses, it's zygotes. Yep. I mean, we're not even talking about like, we're talking about a complete absence of bodily autonomy here. We're talking about people going after birth control. People are going after birth control. And this makes me so mad. My hair, it just actually uh, excited. If I can see it on fire. See, yeah, it's definitely on fire. You have to visualize me with my hair on fire because the number one way to lower the amount of abortions that people are having is to have free access to birth control. And what are these people who are trying to take away access for a decision to be able to choose if, when, and how many children we're going to have? They're also trying to take away birth control, which means it's not about abortion. 
It's all about control. It's not about abortion. You know, one of the things that I just realized, I grew up in a non-religious household. And so um, I feel like there a lot of these conservative talking points I've completely missed. But in the last two months, I realized they're going away. They're going after no-fault divorce. They don't want you to be able to leave a person if you don't want to be with them. Like, it's it's beyond just birth control. It's about control. Liz! Hi, Kristen. It's so good to see you. Hello, listeners. We just are welcoming Liz Winstead, who is amazing, spectacular, wonderful, awesome host of many places, things. What is your favorite professional moment? Just to give our listeners an idea of the massive superstar we're talking with. I mean, my favorite professional moment was probably going. I mean, the work I'm doing at Abortion Access Fund is rewarding in and of itself, just incredible. And I feel like it's my touchstone. But to be able to go back on The Daily Show and talk about my work on The Daily Show with my best friend, Sarah Silverman, was this confluence of all the things that I have worked hard for. Um, So I think that was it. And to be able to have people be very excited. Moji was there. And uh, it was pretty cool to have the audience just go very, be very excited about um, the work that I was doing post Daily Show. So that was it. That was my exciting moment. And I'm sorry I'm late. (laughs) Oh, we totally understood you being late. So listeners, we have on with us right now, Liz Winstead and Moji Alawode-L, who are co-hosts of Feminist Buzzkills podcast and many other things. Both of these amazing leaders wear many hats and have worn many hats. And so in your many hats experience, for people who are maybe new listeners, what would you say is the way to best describe the current ridiculous, awful, very bad situation that we're in, in terms of women and people's bodily autonomy? I think where we're at is a precipice of redefining women and anybody with the capacity for pregnancy uh, to redefine us as a class of living beings that are no longer human and that no longer have full autonomy and rights. I don't say that hyperbolically. I literally say that as um, the laws that are being created are shifting us to chattel, to literally chattel status, movable um, commodities that are put on this earth for procreation breeding and to service the patriarchy. And it's it's scary because when you look at now, you know, we say it often, and I'm guessing Moji probably said it maybe during the course of this uh, conversation, anytime that you assign rights to a fetus, you're stripping rights away from the person who is living and breathing and pregnant. And so there is no, there is no way around that. And so we are in the fight of our lives And what I ask of all of your listeners is to treat it as such and to decide you're going to fight it as such. It is not a theoretical issue. It is not a political football. It is a human rights issue. It is a civil rights issue. And it is um, terrifying. Terrifying. And in this terrifying moment, art, culture, humor, can be a way to keep people activated, engaged, and fighting for our own rights over our own bodies. And both of you have done such a tremendous job 
doing that. The narrative change to help keep us moving forward is so important. I have a weird question. The Barbie movie. How does this play in the feminist <laughs> politics of today? Like, hello, talk about something that was unexpectedly feminist. Like, what are your thoughts on how that's playing in this discussion? Well, I'm going to say that the opening scene of the Barbie movie was it. I wrote almost that uh, verbatim in my book in that came out in 2011. Um, I have been a defender of Barbie for always. To me, as the youngest child of in a Catholic family of five children, Barbie meant freedom. Playing Barbie meant freedom. Other dolls literally were what is a toy that is here here's a fun thing for you to do little girl change a diaper here's a toy that pees and then the 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 fun part is you get to change a diaper and i have actual story about that where it was like you give it the bottle and it pees like about three times and you're like game over so my mom was having friends over of course, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee as mothers did so, so, so stealthily back in the day. And I realized, you know, since you gave the doll a bottle and it peed, what I figured out is new game. If you put the doll, the bottle in the vagina and squirt it, you can make it barf. So I was like, oh my what God, weird kid lives. Two toys. So I went upstairs with my mom, when my mother, and her friends were there and i was like look what i invented and they were like all horrified and i went into child therapy because i'm putting bottles in vaginas of dolls and i was like i was just bored somebody help me and then barbie was like emancipated had a car had a boyfriend she could order around it didn't live in her house he was like maybe whatever I could lob on a lot of hopes and dreams on Barbie the way I couldn't over a toy easy bake oven or toy ironing board for sure. It's like, why don't you just invent drunk of a husband doll that sleeps on the couch? What I thought was really funny about that opening scene also is that it was basically the nightmare that conservatives say we feel about actual babies. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh, these are, we had just come from um, a conference where we watched some of these hate groups talk. And basically that's what they think that liberal women want to just kick around babies the way those girls kicked around dolls. And I'm like, that's not what we want. But also, I agree, Liz, it really was a nice poignant moment of like, Barbie was liberation from just deciding to be a mom and a person doing labor. She yes. had such a good life. And you could and, and the way that you were allowed to open your mind to project a different way of life. As a kid, I never wanted kids like I never had fantasy moments or play acting moments or childhood moments where um, I factored in parenting. It was never anything I ever wanted. And so to be able to have this doll that was like, had its own set of problems, you know, no feet, it could still drive. I was like, well, the feet don't work, but it could drive a car. So whatever, that seems fine. And so I don't know. I, I'm glad the Barbie movie exists. I'm super glad it's making money. I'm really glad there's a feminist message to it. It just, I personally was, I wish I, I don't know. I wanted more out of it. I was kind of like, I get it. I get the, I get all the jokes. I get all the humor. You know, you're kind of waiting for the, nobody has a penis jokes. And you're kind of waiting for where does Ken live? So everything that I was waiting for within the Barbie movie, the self-effacing parts were fun. I could feel the hard hand of Mattel, like 
crossing out <laughs> nobody can be queer actually you know the the um the barbie with disabilities on the dance floor i mean that was like all we saw of barbie with disabilities they didn't empower barbie with disabilities to be doing anything you know so it's kind of like you didn't do great in marketing barbie black barbie to white people like why can't white girls have black barbie you know like why does that have to be just for black girls you know like why can't the full experience of all of it be great here's a whole bunch of friends that hang out together you know it's like that was never promoted in mattel land of like you know what interracial friends as dolls also uh so you know i don't know it was fine it was good i'm glad they made it it made a lot of men feel uncomfortable, which anytime Ben Shapiro is mad about a toy that's taller than him, I am here for it. <laughs> we only have a minute, minute, minute left. And Moji, I don't know if you want to share again, sort of about Feminist Bud Kill podcast, how people can watch it, listen to it, be part of it, stay engaged, stay fired up, stay laughing as they cry and fight for change. I mean, again, you can catch us on all of the podcast sites. Um, we are really funny. We just did our first live show and it was so much fun. We had such great people and we activated some incredible people in Atlanta. So hopefully we'll be doing more of that in the future. But you can go to any of the podcast apps and listen to us every Friday at 6 p.m. or after. It's a podcast. Yeah, you can download it anytime. And do you have a favorite, favorite one for people to listen to? That is such a tough question because we've had, we've had so many incredible guests. Um, a favorite, favorite one. Ooh, uh, no, that's tough. You know, we spoke to Busy Phillips and she could talk, um, but she was hilarious and she was really insightful. It was so much. I think we had to make it a double episode, but it was just a really wonderful conversation. And so that's a great place to go and hear some yeah. of the things we say. I would also say we did an incredible um, what's happened in the year since the Dobbs anniversary. And that's a really great episode because we talked to activists fighting the fight providers who have been navigating the landscape so that you can get a really good overview of what has happened to abortion access in the year since Dobbs fell um, and what you can do to fight back and all that stuff. So that would be my favorite. I love it. Well, thank you for joining us, Moji Alawode-L and Liz Winstead of Feminist Buzzkills podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, thank you, Kristen. thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest, U.S. Representative Jimmy Gomez, who is head of the Dad's Caucus in the U.S. Congress. We'll be back in just a quick flash. We're going to fight for with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by an amazing, spectacular, inspiring guest, U.S. Representative Jimmy Gomez, who is also chair of the Dad's Caucus in Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome, 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 Representative. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I am so excited that you are here and more importantly, that you started a Dad's Caucus. You are representing parents in such a big, powerful, important way in Congress. And can you share a little bit about your story? Why did you start the Dad's Caucus? And you know, I also want to ask, why wasn't there a Dad's Caucus already? Thank you for starting one already. But what, well, what was the story of the start? The, yeah, I decided to start the the Dad's Caucus. Is, um, I just became a dad last August, uh, August 18th to be exact. So uh, it's almost one year uh, to 
it's almost one year and my son's going to celebrate his first birthday. So very excited about that. But um, I took my, I wanted to show my son off like a lot of members do and take him to the swearing in day. And during the swearing in day in the house of representatives, we also vote for who you think should be speaker. So Republicans um, vote for their nominee. We vote for our nominee. And that, for Kevin McCarthy was a marathon. It was like one of the longest vote sessions to elect a speaker in US history. Um, and as we were sitting around, my wife was in the um, in the back of the, um, off the house floor in the members lounge with my son, Hodge. She was getting fussy because it was all of a sudden becoming, instead of two or three hours, it was starting to become a six, seven, eight hour day. So I ended up uh, saying, Hey, let me have him. I put him in a baby care. Cause that's what he's, he loves. He would love me when I would go out on walks with him and he could look around and kind of just hang there and do his thing. And I took him onto the, um, and I missed a vote and AOC and I ran onto the floor and I decided to cast my vote with my baby hanging uh, my son Hodge hanging off of me. And I said, I was, um, in in support of the paid family leave, which I am um, a big passionate um, advocate for, and then enhanced child tax credit. That was and and my son Hodge and everybody else. I was going to uh, cast my vote for Hakeem Jeffries. So I thought I was just doing something that uh, I would normally do, um, which is take care of my son. And then all of a sudden, it just went viral. It, uh, I got a call from the Today Show. Um, late that night, they wanted to talk and my staff wasn't around. So I talked to them for about an hour and a half and we'd got into everything from parenting to politics to, um, you know, what did I want to message? I wanted to send by carrying my son. And I, and I said, first, I recognize that mothers who take their kids to work, they do it because that's what they have to do to get, um, to get by, to take care of their kids, to make a living. And they often get criticized for it. But when a dad does it, you know, we get praise for it. And, um, and I recognize that double standard and I wanted to, um, and I wanted to basically say, first dad, we need to do our part, you know, um, and, and we need to make sure that, um, we're uh, doing our part at home, but also in, in Congress. And a friend of mine, uh, said, Hey, you should start a dad's caucus out of the blue. And then some, another friend of mine sent me a text message who I, um, who I work with in the labor movement. And when I got to Congress, her and I were working on paid family leave together because I was a champion in California. And um, she said, hey, you should start a dad's caucus. I said, I'm going to. And, <laughs> and, and um, but the one little caveat she wrote, she said, we tried to do it for years, bipartisan, bicameral um, for years, and Republicans would always um back out at the last minute, especially the Senate Republicans. And so I said, yeah, that's why I'm going to do it with Democrats only. And the strategy behind that was momentum. You know, if I allow the Republic, like if I all of a sudden just get a basic caucus because I wanted to be bipartisan, um, it's going to slow down the process. It's going to make it very difficult. And it's also sometimes they then they have the veto power if you start a caucus or not. That was unacceptable to me. So I decided to launch it with Democrats only, six Democrats at first. And then after that, um, we've uh, been growing ever ever since. Uh, we have up to 34 Democrats. We've had uh, press conferences and roundtables with like Doug Emhoff, uh, Jessica Seinfeld, um, yeah, Moms Rising, and just a bunch of groups. And then we've been lending our voice to uh, issues that people care about. Affordable child care, the enhanced child tax credit, paid family leave. 
and we get a lot of attention because it's still a unique thing, right? Dad's advocating for what tra- what people have stereotypes about is that these issues are women's issues. And it's like, no, there are family issues. There are uh, economic competitiveness issues. There are issues that impact, you know, everybody from college educated to blue collar trades workers. We want to make sure that everybody has um, a place at the table and speaks up. So that's why we we, we started it. And it was really, um, I didn't want to say, I don't believe in just creating a viral moment um, and letting that moment pass. I believe you have to create movements in order to change policy and politics and perceptions. And you, and, and when we do that, um, we can really make lasting change. So um, that's what we're, what I'm, I'm all about is, you know, we got to pass legislation, we got to pass regulations. And then the, the byproduct of it is also part of it is um, we're changing what people believe is a role of a man in childcare, a role of a man in um, politics and being a caregiver at the same time. And listen, it's it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. But that's what we're we're trying to do. So it's I've I've had a great time and I and I get to combine take care of my son with with my job. And um and I, I couldn't ask for I think anything more except a, a little bit more uh help when it comes to childcare because childcare is pretty expensive no matter if you have a good paying job like I do or my wife does. It, it is a drain on resources. Oh, for sure. Childcare costs more than college, as you know, and <laughs> childcare workers are some of the lowest paid workers in the country. So yeah. really addressing through Congress, thank you so much for being yeah. in these policy areas is critical because parents can't pay any more and we can't pay childcare workers any less. Yeah. So we have to get to those win-win solutions where we have a childcare system and you are a champion of that. And that brings me to a question, sort of a follow-up Good. on a thread that you said. And I think it was an excellent choice. And that was that you decided to start the Dad Caucus with all Democrats. Now, this is interesting, and I want to lift this up for our listeners, because Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarians, in polling across the country, all hugely support the policies that Representative Gomez just brought up. Hugely support access to affordable child care, to paid family medical leave, to child tax credit, to equitable health. But you know who doesn't support those policies? Republican leadership in Congress, and they are standing in the way, a giant barrier of what their own Republican constituents want and need. And yet, and this makes me so angry, but it makes you angry too. Oftentimes, we'll hear people in the Republican leadership talking about family values as they devalue families with their legislation. And so by having a separate caucus, I could see that it would be a good way to be able to talk clearly about the policies that value our families, that value our economy, that value our businesses, and that lift our country and keep out those Republican voices who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. And can you share a little bit with our listeners about how to delineate between those leaders who are talking the talk but not walking the walk and those leaders who are also walking the walk? Because since these things poll so highly, Mm. we're hearing a lot of things um, from Republican leaders that sound like they value families, but they're doing literally the opposite with their actions. And that can be confusing to our listeners. Yeah, no, uh, great question. One of the um, one of the things I've learned since I've been elected from the state assembly days to now is that um, elected officials often use po- policy as the excuse of why they are voting no or 
yes for something, but it's really the politics that is their, um, or uh, it's the that's their excuse. But politics is the reason, and what you, we need to do as um, as uh, advocates for these policies, you need to know the issues so well that anytime they bring up a policy excuse, you could swat it away with facts. So all you're left with is the political reasoning, and and when you do that, they get they they um. They get shy about it, right? Um, it often is. Oh, um, it becomes like, oh, it's going to impact. Uh, it's going to impact employment. It's going to cost too much. It's going to do X, Y, and Z. So we got to be able to swat those down. And and there's some Republicans that just have a fundamentally different view of government and the role it should play in people's lives and in families' lives. Um, they say they value. You're absolutely correct. They say you uh, they value families, but they fail to pass laws that va- uh, value the uh, the work of families. They always do. And so you got to kind of comment, call it out time and time again. Um, yeah, they, they, um, they have some of them that say, oh, yeah, I support paid uh, paid family leave, but then they, they want build to build it off of Social Security. So you basically want to undermine a program that is for our seniors to get by in order to provide uh, paid family leave. We're against that. They're, or they said, oh, we want to do childcare, but we only want to give tax credits that are not fully refundable, which means that not everybody gets it. Only the people that owe taxes can take advantage of it. So there are ideas that are just too limited um, that don't really benefit everybody. So um, we got to make sure that people understand that there is a difference um, when it comes to these policy areas. Um, the enhanced child tax credit. Republicans are for the child tax credit, but they want it limited. They um, the way we had it, where you didn't have to owe taxes, and um, it was fully advanceable, means you got a payment every month. Reduce child poverty in this country by 60 percent. Don't we want policies that are not only effective but cost effective? Heck yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So so that's why. Um, so we got to um, be able to. Um, call bs when uh when when somebody says they're for something but are backing a policy that really doesn't do anything for average americans yeah for sure and i was glad that you raised that because sometimes we see what we call the wolf in sheep's clothing leaders from the republican party say hey i'm for this thing but actually not when you look at the policy (laughs) and one of the things i want to raise that you were talking about just to lift with our listeners is this issue of full refundability which is really about who has access to things like the child tax credit um, supports for child care costs and those kind of things. And a lot of times what happens is this terrible domino when you have kids where you get pushed out of the labor force because you don't have any access to paid family medical leave. And then infant child care is extraordinarily expensive and child care itself costs more than college. So if you're out of the labor force and because you've been pushed out because you don't have any paid family medical leave, it's often very hard to get back in and pay for that really expensive child care. And so you're often needing the supports most when you are not in the labor force in order to get back into the labor force. So we want all of these policies to go to full refundability, which means you get them whether you're in the labor force or out of labor force, because studies and research show that when we have full refundability, meaning if you're out of the labor force, you can get access to this support too, 
then people utilize it immediately into the economy to help boost the economy and to help get back in the labor force, to help pay for that childcare, to help do the work, to put food on a table and a roof over the head, to help make sure that we are sustaining and growing the economy and businesses. And this is the thing that gets me every time. And that is that who runs the world? Of course we do. No. Who fuels the economy? 72% of the GDP is based on consumer spending. And women and moms make 80% of those consumer spending decisions. And when we're pushed out of the labor force and out of being able to make consumer purchases, you know, the shoes for our kids, the food on our table, then the whole economy loses out. Moms, dads, and people don't have kids. Mm -hmm. So we want these policies to be fully refundable. It's like, I'm totally like, you can see my soapbox. You can see me standing up there with the bull. <laughs> fully refundable policies, people. Oh. It makes economic sense. You know, it's not just the right thing to do. It's the economically smart thing to do. So we have just two seconds left for you. How can people yeah. support what you're doing? One of the things they should follow us on our dad's caucus um, social media page. We're on uh, Instagram and, and Twitter, and then also try to contact their member of Congress and ask them to join the dad's caucus. We're welcome any member to join as long as they support one of our three pillars. They don't even have to support all three, even though I'm glad our members support all three. And for one Republican comes on saying childcare, we'll take them. Right. I, I don't mind bringing Republicans on because we need to broaden the tent and bring more people uh, on board to fight for these policies. But they got to fight for them. They're, they can't just be members of name only. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do for starting the Dad's Caucus, for being on today, for pushing the policies that matters to family and our economy. Representative Jimmy Gomez. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're hearing about the writer's strike in Hollywood, what it means to your TV. We'll be back in just a quick second. Kristen Rao Finkbinder, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a guest who has incredible insights. You are really going to enjoy hearing. Allie Shouten Seeks, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. As an executive producer and showrunner for television, including the iCarly revival, and a member of the Writers Guild of America, what is happening with the writer's strike? What's going on? Oh my gosh. I mean, I wish I could say we're making lots of progress, but I think the AMPTP is still, you know, not really willing to come back to the table. So we're just still out there in the heat wave, sweating and picketing. But I will say the encouraging thing is that I don't think anyone has seen this kind of solidarity among the unions um, and both in and outside of entertainment ever. It's It's really... Um, I think the phrase hot labor summer has been thrown around quite a bit, but it's true. <laughs> it makes sense. But when we're talking about what people are striking about, a lot of people are getting educated that their idea that every person who graces a television or media screen in some way, shape or form is a bazillionaire. And that right. is not true. People are also learning, you know, the reality of what it is to be in Hollywood, in movies, in you know, creative content. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what's going on? Absolutely. I've reached the showrunner level and I still am constantly wondering where my next job is going to come from. Um, I think what we're striking for right now is the ability for people to really make a living as a writer and not 
as a bazillionaire, but just in order to get by, Los Angeles is a very expensive city. New York is a very expensive city. Um, you know, you really do need to be there by and large. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing is about these companies kind of trying to wait out actors and writers is that we've become so accustomed to these long breaks that yeah. it's it's really no problem. I mean, I've had two other 10 month stretches of unemployment once after my first job when I thought, OK, I finally made it. I got my first full time writing gig. Here we go. Now it's just going to be like I work and work and work. And I did three seasons on the show and then I had a 10 month break. And then I worked back to back to back to back jobs. And I was like, okay, well, this is it now. Uh, now I've really gotten it. And I, I sold a pilot and I, you know, I, I'm like, okay, this is it. And then I had another 10 months, you know, it, it, you just don't really know. And that didn't used to be the case with longer seasons with um, residuals that could really hold you over on those times between shows um, with larger writers rooms, more jobs. Uh, now that's just kind of the norm. And so it it really is. I mean, I, I've been nervous in this exact same way before and it's it's worked out. And I know what we're fighting for is the longevity of our career. So it, this is something so worth it for writers like myself. I mean, it is so worth it. Sometimes people as a person who writes things like books the amount that you can get paid or even live on and the deadlines. Can we talk about the deadlines have gotten so much shorter. So as the pay has grown smaller, the deadlines have grown shorter and it is just really ridiculously hard to make ends meet as any creative content human compared to in the past. What do you think it's going to take to make people respect and pay for creative content in the way that it should be? Um, unfortunately, we're seeing that there's only one thing that the companies seem to care about, which is, you know, the share price. Um, you know, they have massive, massive profits that we're asking for a fraction of a percentile of. Um, and yeah, there so, are some people making bazillions of dollars. Yes, That's they exist. Few. Yes, they exist. Um, and they're not necessarily on the creative side. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think that people are really, these companies are really going to see um, as their stock prices drop, that's that's really what they're responding to. And we're starting to see that catch up as they run out of content as well. Um, and, and there's, you know, the pipeline is running dry. People are going to cancel subscriptions. You know, and we're not asking for a boycott, but that's just going to happen. And then stock prices are going to drop, um, which they are, have already started to do, I believe. And, you know, that's the we're trying to speak their language of of cold hard cash and the only way to do that is through a work stoppage how can people support so say they're not in this field so they can't strike per se because they're in a different field how can they support yeah i mean i think that um in addition to there's a number of organizations um which maybe we can link to in the in the show notes i can share some of those with you but i know one of them is green envelope grocery i believe it's called um is really fantastic and it offers um you know grocery gift cards to people affected by the strike not just writers and actors but um its primary its primary focus is for support staff the assistants the people already you know not making enough uh that who should be paid a lot more during a regular season but who are really affected by this um but there are a number of organizations and fundraisers that you can donate to um if 
that's not something that's available to you. Just amplifying the message on social media amongst your friends. I think, like you said, there is this misconception that writers are Brazilianaires and what are we complaining about? And, you know, this idea that what about the teachers? What about the nurses? Yeah, we we think they should be paid more too, you know? We're all in this Everyone together. needs to be paid fairly. Exactly. But a lot of people don't realize how low the pay is in Hollywood with movies because it's so glamorous, right? So right. people assume that with the glamour comes the actual living wages, and it's just not true. Even actors are often paid far less than most people think. Yes. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the statistic that it's 86 or 87 percent of actors in the guild don't um, make enough to meet the health insurance requirement, which is twenty six thousand dollars a year. So, you know, these are people who are all working uh, by and large second jobs, third jobs, um, and then having to ask for a day off to go you know, do a guest spot on a show that's going to try and shoot all their scenes in one day so that they don't pay them for an extra day. And, you know, because their budget is being cut, our budget is being cut. And, you know, we have no choice to, but to do that. And then, you know, not giving them as much for a per diem, not giving them what they need to actually dry clean the costume that they brought from home, not giving them residuals if it's a streaming program. I mean, it just goes on and on and on that it, it, almost ends up as like a paid hobby, you know, for a lot of yeah. actors who are doing this because they love it and they love entertaining people. And that just goes to show their commitment to the yeah. craft. And it's and it's really remarkable. As you said, it's not like there's no money in the system. I mean, these companies are making for real bazillions of dollars, you know, and often the executives are making bazillions of dollars. So it's not like it has to be this way. It's not like, oh, there's no money anywhere that we could pay people fairly with. There is money to pay people fairly. There is. Yes. Um, and, you know, one of the things that has set alarm bells for writers and actors is that the studios don't want to share streaming data, which to me says that it's good and that people are watching the show and that if they shared it, they'd probably have to pay us more because if they had all this data, which they do, I mean, I've, I've been told down to the line when people stopped watching my show because I've been mostly on streaming. Oh, they didn't like this scene. They loved this scene. They rewatched this scene. So they oh. know exactly who's watching and ah. how much they're watching. And so if they had the data to say, I'm sorry, people are just not watching your show. You don't deserve residuals. I'm sure we would have heard about it, which means they have the opposite data. <laughs> ah. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. So for people who are thinking about eventually getting into the field that <laughs> is glamorous, you know, either acting or writing, what's your advice? Um, I mean, my advice is that people are always going to need great storytelling. Um, there's always going to be an audience for it. And I think, you know, I, I remember when I was coming up, a lot of people saying, well, why don't you just do a YouTube show or why don't you just do this? And the fact is, no matter what you're doing, whether it's theater or TikTok um, or more traditional TV, multi-camera sitcoms like myself, um, you know, you have to do what you're passionate about because there's always going to be people who are so excited about the thing that you think is just a dumb horror movie or just a dumb comedy. Don't do that. Do the thing you're excited about because I guarantee there's people like me who that dumb comedy, like we're going to pour our heart and soul into it. Um, and so, you know, I didn't feel like I had the resources or the skill set 
to make a great YouTube channel. I know other people who that was absolutely the best way in for them. So finding sort of what your skill set and what your passion is and just going toward that no matter what people say about, oh, well, shouldn't you be on TikTok? Shouldn't you be on Instagram Reels? Maybe, maybe that's the best thing for you. And that's the best way to get your voice out there and to write and perform. Maybe it's by taking classes at an improv theater. Maybe it's by going to grad school. Maybe, you know, there's so many different routes. And I think all of those are still available. And you just have to find out kind of what works best for you and find your people. Um, you know, that's been the best part of the picket line is, is connecting with people and reconnecting with people um, who I worked with five, 10 years ago um, and getting to catch up with them and, uh, you know, talk about how we're in this together and, you know, become friends again. I love it. And and that's something that we haven't touched on. We have only like three minutes left, but the power of story to change our worlds. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, because obviously our worlds need some changing. I mean, we're having unfair pay. We don't yet have a care infrastructure. We've got a situation, people. We've got democracy under attack. So do you want to talk a little bit about the power of story to change our worlds? I would love to. Um, the example I'd love to use is the best picket I went to, we have all these special event pickets and there was a trans takeover at Netflix, um, which was so much fun, but also so inspiring because, you know, people who got up and spoke were talking about, we're looking at this really hateful legislation, all these anti-trans healthcare bills. And then what is maybe the one outlet for someone, for a teenager in one of those states, for a kid in one of those states, uh, is the storytelling is that they can go watch a show. And so we need these voices telling these authentic stories from their experience as really a lifeline to a lot of people. And also hopefully to get people who are maybe don't know as much about this as they think they do to watch these programs and see the humanity of, of trans and non-binary people. I think that's so important to have who we can be in our best Selves reflected on the screens in an aspirational way and the stories that let us know that we're not alone. I mean, when we are in the United States of America, a culture of rugged individualism, we often get blamed for things that just are impossible to make work anyway. Like if you can't afford childcare, it's your fault. Hello, childcare costs more than college. If you can't deal with having a baby, hello, we don't have any paid family medical leave. We're the only country that is industrialized in the world without that critical policy in place. You know, those stories let us know we're not alone. And yeah. that when this many people are having the same types of struggles at the same time, it's not our own faults to be internalized. Instead, we can build that movement for change. We can create national structural change. We can pick it and demand better pay. You know, we can do things together with our collective power. So I love that you share stories. I love that the picket line is happening, although I'm sad for the reason why. And I hope that it is successful very, very soon. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for, you know, hearing us out. And and I'm really excited to um, hopefully hear from your listeners and get people involved. For sure, for sure. Thank you, thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about the candidates, the campaigns, and the elections in Virginia in 2023 and why they're such a big deal. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to fight for love. Fight 
breaking through with me, Kristen Ralphing Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by a really inspiring guest, yet another inspiring guest for you. We have Virginia State Senator Jennifer Boisco. Welcome, Senator. Welcome. Thank you, Kristen. It's I'm really happy to be here with you all and Moms Rising. I'm a big fan. Well, we're big fans too. There is a lot going on right now in Virginia. When we look at the elections and look across the nation and we say, where are the big elections happening in the United States of America in 2023? All eyes are on Virginia. Senator Boisco, why are all eyes on Virginia? Well, because we have so much at stake, not only for Virginia's future, but for the United States. Um, We are the only We are the only state in the South that still has adequate protections for abortion care um, from all the way to New Mexico. So people are watching about that. We have gun violence prevention initiatives that we have put in over the past several years that help protect people from from the, the biggest killer of children in the country, guns. And our governor, um, whose name is Glenn Youngkin, is interested in a, a, a national profile, and he is planning to use our races as his stepping stone to try to get attention uh, on the national stage. And so he's putting in everything he has, um, and that's why I'm putting in everything that I have to, to help make sure that we are winning these elections. Our our public school system, our economic opportunities for working people like paid family and medical leave and equal pay, as well as the environmental protections. I mean, I could go on and on. Voter protections, our democracy basically is at stake. So that's why I'm so happy that you've invited me here today to talk to you and looking forward to this conversation. Pick up a thread, a very, very, very important and heavy thread of what you just said, and that is that our democracy is at stake. Sometimes people hear that and they say, what? Really? No, that can't be. It is. We know it is. For those of us who've worked in policy and politics and in democracy for a long time, now we truly do have democracy under threat in a big way. Can you share a little bit about how democracy is under threat? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So if we look at uh, voting protection and the rights to vote. We've made some pretty significant improvements in 2020 and 21 when the Democrats had control of the House, the Senate, and the governor's seat. And since we have no longer uh, had the uh, majority, there have been efforts time and time and time again. And I serve on the Privileges and Elections Committee, so I've been privy to, to these um to these events where they have tried to repeal all of the good work that we did. There's also an effort underway at the national level to change the way we count our electoral college. And so we could even, we could even see someone who wanted to, to disenfranchise democratic voters, see them, uh, you know, change the, 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 requirements of who has the electoral college votes and take votes away from the majority of voters in Virginia, which we know are democratic typically. Um, this is not this is not theoretical. Uh, we spent weeks hearing from Republicans in the House who had passed legislation that would remove access to early voting, remove access to um, to the the drop boxes that we've instituted, change the way our electoral college is um, allocated, 
uh, the votes that go to our electoral college is allocated. This is not theoretical anymore. It's real. We've got the votes to count, to show to people. And the governor is is making it very clear that he supports all those things. If a candidate, if an elected leader is putting up barriers to voting under the guise of voter protection, end quote, legislation, then that person is actually worried that if everyone who is able to vote votes, they will lose. So <laughs> basically, it's losers who are proposing these voter suppression legislations, using the words voter protection, by the way, um, because when everybody votes, we all do better. And in the United States of America, we actually have one of the lowest voter participation rates of all industrialized nations. We need to be able to vote more, not less. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's just you you got it spot on, Kristen. Um, when people have the ability to use their voices, no matter how they're going to vote, they win, right? Um, we live in a democracy and we are supposed to be able to use our our political capital. However, we've seen this, this, uh, the Republicans and this administration trying to disenfranchise people who have been formerly incarcerated, who have served their time, saying that he's going to be picky about who he gives restoration of rights for. We have seen them claiming, uh, like what you just talked about, pretending as though they don't agree that our system is, is safe. They have removed us from the multi-state compact called uh, that would help verify when someone moves in or out that they have either uh, registered to vote in another state or they've moved here from another state so they can be unregistered in that state to make voting more secure. For some reason, they removed us from that from that process as well. I just go back to your vote is your voice. And when we get down to it, these state elections and local elections are where it matters the most. In a presidential year, we look at 70% of the eligible population or more coming out to vote. In, in races like the ones that we have this year in Virginia, where I'm at the top of the ticket as a state senator, um, we, we are expecting less than 50%, possibly even 25% of the eligible voters coming out. This is a time when people who want to make sure that we, re, you know, restore and and preserve rights for public education, for environmental protection, for gun violence prevention, for abortion care, for LGBTQ communities, for working people having a livable wage. This is where their votes can really matter. And the Republicans know that. They also know and understand very well that Democrats are right on the issues and that the majority of the population agrees with us. And so the only tool that they have is try to use scare tactics and to reduce the number of people who have access to those polls. So not properly funding their local board of elections, not having enough polling place or equipment that is operational, not having enough attorneys who will answer when there might be something that is questionable going on. Those are all ways of, of disenfranchising voters. And we are all hands on deck to make sure that we are doing the best we can so that the most Virginians possible come out and vote uh, and use their voices because that's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. And one of the questions that always comes up is how to do it. So we've got a lot of listeners. We know that this type of voter suppression legislation is actually popping up in states all across the country, not just Virginia. 
what can people do? Like what works? You're sitting in office as a senator. So you have like the inside data on what works and what doesn't work from a constituent contact perspective. Well, absolutely. So number one, if you're in another state and this is happening in your state, you need to speak to your elected officials at the local and the, and the state level. So your state senator, your state legislator, but also your mayor, your town council, your board of supervisors member, uh, to let them know that you you believe that fair and safe elections are of the most vital importance. Secondly, you should support candidates who um, who stand up for these these uh, these proposals and and protections. Uh, in our elections, we expect that these are going to be the most expensive races in the entire history of Virginia's General Assembly because the governor has unlimited money, and so. I was just telling somebody, you know, I've done, I have won races with $25 and $50 and $100 contributions one at a time um, because every single person's voice matters and our grassroots are the most important people. Um, so no matter what your capacity is helping us in Virginia or helping in your own state, we do have our elections in November. Voting starts in approximately 45 days. So um, because of the laws that we pass that make it easier to vote, where you don't have to have an excuse to vote early and you can start voting 45 days in advance, um, giving all working people the opportunity who can't take the day off. But those are those are the big things um, right now, you know, making your voice heard when the when the the proposals are being heard before your your political body. And then secondly, helping. Um, we certainly need your help. And you brought up another thing. You're bringing up so many great things, and that is voting. A lot of people think their vote doesn't matter. What are your thoughts? Kristen, I don't know if you recall, um, but my very first race, I was not given much of a chance of winning. I was going up against someone who had been in office for 14 years. I worked really hard, and out of 21,000 votes, I lost by 32 that means that if just two more people in each precinct had come out to vote, I would have won. We had another instance two years, uh, three years, two years later, where a candidate won split 100, you know, 50, 50. It was, it was an absolute tie and they had to draw names out of a hat to decide who was going to have the seat. She lost at the time, unfortunately, because they did not draw her name. And uh, she later beat the man. She came back two years later and she won that race. But in Virginia, especially in these low turnout races, they do come down to one. They come down to a dozen. They come down to three dozen. Uh, so every single vote does count. And so many people who don't believe that their votes matter just are, are just wrong. Um, yeah. You do have the ability to make a difference in somebody's in, in somebody's outcome. And that brings me to the last thing. Don't just vote for things, candidates, people at the top of the ticket. Vote all the way down. Vote for the state legislatures. Vote for the county. Vote for the city. And if you don't know who to vote for, Google is an amazing resource. <laughs> just Google their names um, and find out. What's your advice on down ballot voting? Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta go all the way to the bottom and flip it over. If there's somebody on the back, these these races, these local races and the state races affect your life more than the presidential race will. So, what happens in your schools? What your kids are being taught? 
or not taught? Um, how much money is going to go into the school funding? So are your teachers going to be paid a livable wage and have reasonable um, access? And you're going to have, you know, your your specialty teachers. Those kinds of things matter. How much money goes into your transportation system and where those improvements are going to be made. Those kinds of bread and butter issues that you like get irritated about how long it takes you to commute every day or that, you know, your daughter or son doesn't have access to all the resources that they need. Those decisions are made in by the people who are on the ballot in your local races. It's really important. And Again, like the things that I vote on are the, you know, multi-billion dollar state budget, the transportation dollars and funding so that we are, uh, you know, using money the best and brightest way, access to the internet for rural areas, um, but also the hot button issues that we're all hearing about, gun violence prevention, uh, abortion care and access to doctors not being hamstrung by a bunch of politicians, um, letting doctors make decisions for themselves with their patients instead of getting involved in that. And, and you know, you can just turn on CNN or Fox News or, or MSNBC, depending on what your issue is, and see kind of what's going on around the country. Your vote makes a difference. We're only going to make a, a an improvement in all of this if everybody gets involved. I believe that there are more people who care about the basic kitchen table issues of making sure that when they have a loved one who is sick, they have the ability to care for them without losing their job. Then, then you know some of the stuff that you're hearing, you know the the talking heads screaming about, but. We're only going to be able to do that if you put the people who are willing and committed to those issues in office and you have the ability to make a difference. And I'm just glad that you care about this. Moms Rising is a is an organization that I've got a lot of respect for. And I just want you to get your friends to also bring five to 10 friends along with you when you go vote. Thank you so much for being on Virginia State Senator Jennifer Boisco. Thank you, Thanks, Senator. Kristen. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation, which requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.